Nobody is prepared for something like this. I collected all the courage I had. Um, I remember I was preparing for this and crying and crying, like, how on earth do you tell your child something like that? And when he stopped walking... Lucien Merabi, an experienced negotiator, specialized in financial and commercial negotiations and inspirational speaker. And you're getting praises from former FBI officials who would say that you're one of the best negotiators they've ever met. Aside from being one of the most influential negotiation professionals, she is a mother of Alex, 11 years old, who has Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Whenever we come to an agreement and there was a female negotiator involved, they tend to respect the agreement better and longer. And he has a gun against one of the hostages. You know that, okay, either we're gonna shoot him mm -hmm. or he's gonna shoot the hostage. And there you are as mother. Who are you going to negotiate with then, right? Lucien Mehrabi, welcome to Xeno Talks. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us today. You know, when I first met you, I could feel the like one of the greatest energy ever. And, you know, it's one thing about reading on your LinkedIn profile that you're like a professional negotiator, which you don't see that a lot, like people who are who, who take that as a profession, you know. Um, but the fact that, you know, when we met and we talked about your experience and the people that you've come across, you know, and, 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 and you're getting praises from former FBI officials who would say that you're one of the best negotiators they've ever met. That, for me, it says a lot about you. I mean, uh, another thing that really struck my eye for me is how you're not just focusing on your own craft as a profession, but one of the most important professions in the world for me is um, being a mom. And we did talk a little bit about your life as a mother, as a wife, but uh, recently your name has gone viral all over the internet because of something that you've shared that not a lot of people knew about. You know, I think they just focus more about, okay, the art of negotiations and emotional intelligence, everything that you are great about. But let's start to break it down into a few things. First, uh, we know you already speak five languages. Is that correct? Yeah, mm -hmm. you speak five languages. So you speak multiple languages. You're, you know, you've been all over the world. Uh, you've spoken to... Uh, or in maybe over 40 countries, I think, yeah. something like that, 40 countries, all of these things. Mm -hmm. So tell us first about yourself and how you started, and then I'm going to dive into uh, a little bit more in your professional and then your personal life. So tell us about yourself. Ms. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for that warm introduction. Um, very grateful to be here, and it was the same for me. Great uh, energy when I met you. Very grateful to, to have you as my friend. Um, my career started in finance. So I grew up in the Netherlands, worked for a bank, went to Paris, and it was supposed to be a one-year exchange program. Mm -hmm. And that became two years, three years, four, 14. Um, that's what happens, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Had a great time in Paris, worked in finance. First 15 years of my career were in finance. I was on trading floors of investment bank and the European Stock Exchange, where I was responsible for sales and strategy. Um, loved it but knew it wasn't my true passion mm -hmm. without knowing what it was, like mm -hmm. so many people, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I was very fortunate to work for a company who invested a lot in uh, development. Okay. So they brought in two professional negotiators to train us. Mm. 
And that training was so fascinating. It was a year-long thing. Mm. I learned so much about human behavior and, and emotional intelligence and mm. all the negotiation tactics. And I remember one day uh, looking at the trainer and thinking, I want to do what you do. Mm. Like, can we negotiate yeah, yeah. professionally? Yeah, yeah. How cool is that? Mm -hmm. Just like you, I didn't even know that existed. Like, yeah. professional negotiator, what's that? So, yeah, when I learned that you can actually be hired to help companies negotiate, I thought, okay, that's it. This is what I want to do. Yeah. And then I went through the whole process, learned everything I could about it, got certified and, and started that on, uh, yeah, as yeah. a business. That's amazing. You know, for me, whenever I thought of negotiation as a very cool role, I, I always remember Denzel Washington. Mm -hmm. Like in a lot of his movies, whether it was like Man on Fire or Pelham 123 or anything like that, he was always on the crossroads of oh i think it was that movie also with um was it with was it man of fire it was with clive owen oh anyways but he's always like this they, they, you know in the police force they'd have to mm -hmm. find somebody who's a good negotiator to deal yeah. between like the villain and the cops you know mm -hmm. i mean okay you talked about it was these two trainers that maybe like you know inspired you mm -hmm. but was there any other significant incident movie or anything that, that kind of wanted to let you get into this field? Well, I've always been fascinated by human behavior. Okay. Like why do we do what we do, the way we do it? Why do people react in a certain way and others react completely different based on the same situation or crisis that they're dealing with? Mm. I remember once I was 14 or 15, I was biking you know, in the mm -hmm. Netherlands with my sister to the library. And she was taking all these cool books for our age. And I took a book called um, How to Become Better at Lobbying. Wow. At really? Yes. Yeah. So How I was old really, are you when you saw? I'm 14 or something. Wow. But I was already fascinated by the whole art of influencing, mm. of convincing, of coming to agreements, have things your way. I need to look <laughs> up that book. That is a really cool book. It was like it's an old book now. Okay. But, yeah, yeah. Um, still, and, yeah. and, and I remember my sister telling me, Louis, why don't you just pick books your age? Mm. You know, I said, but this is so fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> Imagine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so the interest has always been there. Um, I had to negotiate often with my dad, who was <laughs> extremely strict. And, you know, my sisters would push me forward and say, like to let go you go out or not. Exactly. Or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, 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 so on that point, let me ask you this. What's rule number one about the art of negotiation? So what, what should someone look out for if they want to negotiate a deal for them to, to be successful in it? Mm. Well, you're going to be surprised by what I say, because, you know, when people ask me that, they often expect a technique or a trick, right, uh, yeah. of what you can do to uh -huh. influence someone else. Okay. I believe the number one skill you need to be a good negotiator is self-control. Really? Mm -hmm. How to remain calm. Because when you're negotiating, that automatically means there is conflict. Like, if we don't have a disagreement, there's nothing to negotiate about. So you're coming into a situation that is most often tense. There is conflict. Now, the yeah. majority of people don't like conflict. They're not comfortable with mm. it. So the worst in us comes out. Stress responses, reflexes that we don't like. We bring to a negotiation table our luggage, our background, our traumas. And we tend to, when we are in a tense situation, say mm. something or do something that we immediately regret. And what was that? A lack of self-control. So if you want to be a good negotiator, work mm. on yourself, work on your triggers and try to increase that level of self-control, especially okay. in times of crisis. Wow. OK, thank you for that. That's a that's a very good tip out there for all you people who want to learn about, you know, negotiation. So you were talking about your parents and you your dad. He was very strict and, and you, you were able to 
start winning him over, you, you noticed that that was the time when you're like, okay, maybe this is something that I want to do in the future. I always had a passion for personal development. I went into finance a bit by coincidence, mm -hmm. uh, stayed there because, you know, you're young, the salary is good, and then you get another bonus, and the mm. fast pace of the trading floor was cool. But there was always this voice telling me, you don't belong here, you don't belong mm. here, um, like many people. And, and there comes a point in your life where you have to act on it. Mm. Um, and I did. In uh, 2016, I said, okay, I'm done with finance, okay. goodbye left it, did a whole year executive coaching program, okay. again, learning about human behavior, okay. went deeper into the negotiation, into emotional intelligence, into all these type of personality analysis yeah. and anything I could get my hands on, basically, yeah. on human behavior and uh, started coaching people, loved it, and then um, joined my mm. partners, actually, mm. the ones who trained me back okay. in 2013. Mm joined them and, and, and became basically their uh, head of negotiation training uh, here in the Middle East and wow. then worldwide. And it's, it's been amazing. Like we've known each other for more than 10 years mm. now. Um, we've trained, like we've trained so many companies, like more than 600 companies, yeah. special forces, the United Nations diplomats, um, frontline negotiators, you name it, medical mm. doctors, anyone who's dealing with high stakes negotiations. Um, we train them, we teach them, we advise them, we're in the background, we prepare the strategies, mm. we, we are with them on the negotiation table. Any type of high stakes negotiations where you don't, mm. where you can't lose, that's where they call us. Interesting. You know, there's this old adage which says, my way or the highway. Mm. How do you respond to that as a chief negotiator? In everyday life, in business, in most of politics, all that is crap, like mm. my way or the highway. Yeah. But you can use it as a technique yeah. in situations where the stakes are very high mm. and you can allow yourself to go all in mm. and lose the relationship. Yeah. So let's say you're dealing with the dogmatic people who's taking, um, who has taken people hostage. Yeah. Okay. And he has a gun against one of the hostages, mm -hmm. uh, against his head. And you know that, okay, either we're going to shoot him mm -hmm. or he's going to shoot the hostage. In that case, of course, you've tried everything about collaboration, etc. But if it's a real life threat and with very little time mm. and you don't get the collaboration that you want, then it can be my way or the highway because you want to limit the damage. Does negotiation also work in other situations, like uh, with addicts, mm -hmm. people who are maybe addicted to alcohol or drugs or anything like that, is that something that you... Absolutely. And, and you know what's interesting? Uh, we did research on complex profiles mm. because the error many people make is they negotiate the same way with everybody. Mm. But yes. you can't. Yeah. And we tend to negotiate the way we are. Mm. So my natural way and my preferred way of negotiation is full of empathy, full of trust, collaboration. Like, let's go the easy route. Mm. It doesn't have to be manipulative, doesn't have to be competitive. Uh, the easy route is when you choose collaboration, right? Mm -hmm. But you cannot choose collaboration in every situation and with everybody. We're dealing with complex profiles. So that can be people, as you said, who have taken alcohol, have taken drugs, dogmatic people mm. who automatically believe my way or the highway. People who don't care about winning or losing as, as long as they create a lot of damage. That mm. can be like a real 
um, psychopaths, narcissistic people, people who are resistant to change, you name it. There are so many complex profiles. You can't negotiate with someone who is autistic, for example, the same yeah. way as somebody who isn't. Like you're going to avoid the physical touch, that kind of things, which with another profile might actually be ben very beneficial. So if you want to influence a person, you mm. have to know yourself extremely well mm -hmm. for the self-control aspect we talked about. But you also have to be extremely open to who am I dealing with. Have mm. this capacity to bond with people, to connect with people, to make them want to talk to you, mm. not assume that they do. Mm. Um, most of the cases, they don't. Like often when I'm called in, the first thing they, they tell me, I don't want to talk to you. You know, like, uh, who are yeah. you? Yeah. So go, get over that. Um, and then be able to connect with people to truly understand who am I dealing with here? Yeah. What is their need? What is their language? How mm. can I speak in a certain way that one, they feel listened to, mm -hmm. two, they want to open up, and three, they have a minimum level of trust in me that I will say what I'm saying that I will do, mm. because that will then make them want to do the same thing. You know, when they say when you're negotiating something or even like selling something, you probably have to have a lot of intelligence on the person or the subject or whatever it is. So that you probably will have some comment on it. But I was going to say, like, if you can comment on that, but also what happens if you don't have enough information and intelligence on the subject or the subject matter? Yeah. So that's where your skills come in even more on the negotiation table, right? Of course, preparation is super important. It's yeah. one of the most important things. And the more you can prepare, the better. But we're living now in a time where it's not a lack of information that's the problem. It's even an overload mm. of information. So there's a new skill that comes in, which is how to select mm. what information is important and what not. So that is all happening before you go on a negotiation table. But sometimes we're called in like literally last minute and you have between the moment you step in your car until the moment you get there to prepare. Okay, you don't have time to go on Google and all those things. You have to go in um, with very little bit of information. So mm. you call everybody that you know that might know that person, you get all the intel that you can. But once you're on the negotiation table, that's where your own skills come in and saying, how can I find out the maximum that I need yeah. about this person in the short period of time that I have mm. while influencing the outcome that would be most beneficial for us. Okay. And that takes a high level of open-mindedness, of curiosity, of this willingness to remain calm and take your time um, many people are very uncomfortable with conflict and tend to rush to solutions. Mm. Um, but sometimes taking your time to truly understand what matters then helps you save time by coming up with the right solution. Mm. Um, this is very interesting. Let me, let me ask you this. You said one of the most important skills is self-control. What if you're talking to people who don't have self-control or you may think are not reasonable? Like... Let's talk about an issue for me personally. It's, it's, it, it bothers me a lot, mm -hmm. which is now, for example, you look at Afghanistan. The Taliban have taken over and they do not want to let women go to school anymore mm -hmm. and get education. This was already an issue before. Then that government had to be taught, well, the Taliban had to be taken off to be you know, able for the, the, the girls to go back to school and everything else. And now they came back again, banning it. How do you deal with that? Because I, I don't know whether you would have to say somebody is rational or irrational. Can you re, can is everything negotiable? I have so many questions around, but I, I think you know where I'm getting. I want to hear your thoughts. 
Well, I think it's very interesting what you said, and it's an important aspect to bear in mind that human rights is not a linear line. Like, it's not we achieved something and then we have it for life. And, and Taliban and what's happening in Afghanistan is an excellent example of that. You see, the women in Afghanistan used to have a very free life in the 70s, mm -hmm. walk around in skirts and however they wanted, live the life they wanted. And then, boom, it got taken away and they went to the other extreme. And right when we thought that things were getting better for them in terms of, of, of freedom and human rights, boom, the Taliban takes over again. So it's a very important aspect to bear in mind, and that is in politics, in world government, but also in negotiations, that even if you achieved something, don't assume you have it forever. Mm. It can always backfire. It can always come back again. You can always go back and have to negotiate something that you already had. Mm. That is a technique, for example, that Donald Trump often uses. Like, whether you like the guy or not, doesn't matter. I'm looking at his negotiation mm. technique. The Donald Art of the Trump, Deal, his book. For example. Yes. But what does he do? Like, if you look at all the type of negotiations that he had, Donald Trump comes in. Look at the Paris Accord, for example. He comes in. He takes away something that was already there, mm -hmm. that you had already agreed on, whether it was with him or with somebody else. First, he takes it away. Then he makes you want to negotiate something that you already had. Mm -hmm. So that even if you achieve what you already had, you feel like a winner. Mm. But you didn't win anything. You yeah. just gained back what you already, what you already had. had achieved, yes. It was the same with the COVID, with all the restrictions. And then we got them back and people were happy. But what are you happy about? You already had that freedom. Yeah. It was just taken away from you. So it's very interesting to know what is, what is a real win for real. And with the Taliban, you know, you go in as somebody who has a certain mindset and who has traveled the world and who has been everywhere. And you go in and you look at the women in Afghanistan and say, this is crap, like this is mm -hmm. back in time, like yeah. what is happening? And I yeah. wish we could negotiate with them to make things better. Yeah. But when you go in and, and you want to negotiate with the Taliban, the first thing you have to do is become a credible negotiation partner in their eyes. So the moment you come in with those judgments, they don't even want to talk to you, right? Mm. So if you want to influence them, then we first have to go and say, okay, I want to understand how they think, why they think that. Like they don't um, prevent women uh, wearing in a certain way just because they want to be bad people. Mm. Like they sincerely believe this is the best thing for women. And that's when we have to go and say, okay, how can we influence that if we want to influence that? And is that the first thing we need to influence? Should we influence other things? Because women are suffering from that, but people are suffering from hunger in the same country because of the same people. People are suffering from lack of education, from lack of freedom. And how do you put in a hierarchy what is the most important? Mm. You see, there's, some, there's so much that comes into play and, 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 and it's so extremely complex. Mm. But the number one thing, if you want to influence somebody, is to really try to put your own judgments aside, mm -hmm. go in as open as possible, as curious as possible, as... Um, with the highest level of willingness to try to understand them, mm -hmm. even if you are dealing with dogmatic people. There's a very like common perception that women are better negotiators. Now, I can tell you, I have my mom and my <laughs> sisters. They're, they're extremely persuasive. Like my mom, I mean, you know, and even whenever I was a kid, if I, whenever I needed something, it was impossible to get a green light from my dad. And a lot of the times I just felt like he was just trying to like annoy me and just, just say no for nothing, you know, but I'd always go to my mom 
and she always had. So is it true? Now, so this is one. I mean, I know it's. I'm saying it and it might sound like I'm just messing around, but I'm not actually. I'm being honest. I, I really think women are very persuasive. Second, I'm involved in a lot of different uh, activities in my daily life. And, and one of them happens to be sort of like geopolitical as well. And in a lot of these circles, um, they always talk about how women can play a massive role in conflict resolution. Mm-hmm. When, you know, that's, that's why we want to bring more women into the diplomatic space and everything else. So the floor is yours. Is it true? And are they better negotiators? Well, it's a long answer because <laughs> okay. there are many, many different aspects to it. And you asked it in a way that, that I can go in different directions. First yeah. of all, I definitely agree we need more women in the conflict resolution space. Okay. For the plain reason that whenever we have women, and this is research showing this, whenever we have women on a negotiation table, the agreement that does get reached tends to be respected more and longer, mm. especially peace negotiations. Whenever we come to an agreement and there was a female negotiator involved, they tend to respect the agreement better and longer. So for that reason alone, we could say by having female negotiators, we are literally saving lives. Hmm. That's how far it goes. And yet, most of the peace agreements, there's not one female signature on it. That's true. 2023 is still happening. Yeah. So we need a major shift there. Now, your second question, do women negotiate better? They don't necessarily negotiate better. They don't necessarily negotiate worse. Research shows that in terms of outcome, it tends to be similar. Interesting, Interesting, right? Okay. But the perception is that women negotiate better, and that is for several reasons. Women have natural skills that we have from evolution, that we have from raising children, that we have naturally because we had to for survival. One of them is the ability to connect. So that is, for example, ask a newly um, mom to differentiate between the cries of her baby, and she can tell you from a distance, this cry means pain, this cry means hunger, this cry is urgent, this cry isn't. Really? Mm-hmm. But dads would never figure that out. <laughs> it would probably take them a bit longer. It would probably take them a bit longer. So okay. that, plus having to communicate with a being that doesn't talk, yeah. teaches you to learn about body language, yeah. to connect, yes. to have empathy, yeah, to yeah. bond. Like it goes even further, right? It's compassion, yeah. it's love. So we have the natural ability to understand mm. what's happening without them talking. That is, that, that is a given. I and agree. Another reason is women um, are naturally more collaborative than competitive compared to men. And on a negotiation table, mm. when you have high collaborative skills, you can come to solutions in situations where competitiveness isn't even necessary. Mm. And, and like that, there are several other reasons why naturally women tend to be better negotiators. But here's the thing. They don't. They don't negotiate as often as men. Why is that? Now, the reason is, one, there are unconscious biases. And this, again, research shows that when I go and negotiate my salary, people think that it's weird. Why is she asking that? She shouldn't be. Male, same age, same everything, goes to negotiate salary. It's normal. We have this unconscious bias. Both men and women have that. So that is something that we also have to influence. So if you want to you know, create a space where women step up more and they negotiate, which would be beneficial for everybody, whether that's business, politics, or, or, or government, um, uh, or high stakes, 
hostage doesn't matter. It would be beneficial for the entire world if women would step up and negotiate better, especially the high stakes deals. But it's not happening because of our own biases. So if you want to help um, improve that, mm. go inward and say, what type of biases do I have? Do you think it's normal that a woman asks for a salary increase? Do you think it's normal that a woman goes into a tough negotiation before joining a company? Or do you think it's okay when a man does it and when a woman does it? It's a bit weird, you know? Mm. So that's that. And then there's the internal part. Women tend to know unconsciously about all these biases and say, oh, if I do that, I'm going to be less likable. I'm going to be perceived as A, B, and C. So they stop themselves. Mm. And that is why men and women have to work together to end this massive, massive negotiation gap. Another research, I can come with all the research you want. Yes. Another research shows that women tend to negotiate better when they negotiate for somebody else. Interesting. And that's where I see that every single day in the special needs sphere, mm. where if you go and look at patient advocacy, mainly women, if you look at special needs discussions in schools where they negotiate things that are needed for their children, mm -hmm. mainly moms, mm. right? So women tend to have this mama beard that comes out when they have to negotiate for somebody they love, and then they negotiate and get better deals than yeah. when they're negotiating for themselves. Yeah, I, I see that, especially like when, when moms are negotiating something for their kids at school or at some kind of a playing facility or something like that. But then... There's a different side of them that comes out, but before mm -hmm. that, it's not there at all. You know, um, we we this th we're gonna have to have a whole session around this because I'm a big fan. I mean, we didn't even get into you know like mediation, arbitration, all those things before a situation goes to court and you have the public prosecution and everything else. But we we will definitely have. I promise you guys, you're gonna see like round two of this because this is <laughs> this is something else. You know. Um, before we went live, listen, we spoke about something very, very interesting. And I think, uh, you know, I always tell everybody, like, I, 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 the, the people I respect the most in this world are mothers. Like, and we, you just talked about moms right now. You're one of the most inspirational moms in the world. I mean, it says in your bio about you being an inspirational professional negotiator and everything. That's great. And that's amazing. And, and uh, I'm proud of you. But I'm even more proud of you as a mother. And you said that you had a, like the toughest conversation that you've ever had was with your child. And please tell us what you told Alex. Well, difficult conversations are my job, right? That's what I do every day. So you might think then you're prepared for any difficult conversation in your life. And um, I wasn't prepared when I had to to um, tell my son that he has a um, physical condition, a, a, a disease for which there is no cure yet. It's a progressive disease that is breaking down his muscles um, and step by step he's losing every function that he has. Um, it, the, the condition is called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Basically his muscles break down. So when he was born everything was fine, he looked normal, he could walk, talk, run, whatever he wants. How old is he now? He's now 12. Mm. Um, and when he was six, we got the diagnosis and they said, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing we can do. Um, there's still no cure. I mean, science is advancing fast and we hope something will be found while he's still alive. But basically this means in a few years, he's not going to walk anymore. 
um, that he's not going to stand anymore, then he won't be able to feed himself anymore, and then he won't be able to breathe um, alone, and then he's going to need help with this, help with that, help with that, until his heart gives up. And the average life expectancy today is around 25, 26 years old. And there you are as a mother. Um, who are you going to negotiate with then, right? Like, what are you going to do? Uh, so we were in Paris when we got the diagnosis. And of course, your world crumbles. You think like, that's it. You know, I'm never going to be happy again. I, I, I can't deal with this. Nobody is prepared for something mm. like this. Nobody. So when you get that, it's, it's interesting that we always think that these things happen to other people until it happens to you and your child. Um, and our reaction was, okay, if there's nothing we can do about how long he will live, then we're going to go all in on his quality of life on how well he will live. And that's when immediately we decided we're going to move to Dubai. Um, we're going to give him the best life possible. Here he can go to the pool, which is beneficial for him. We have the, the sun more than we want to, mm. which is beneficial for him. And he, we're just going to give him a great life as long as we can and, and as long as he's around. And that's what we did. We came to Dubai. Mm. We, we do everything we can to give him a great life. We, we travel. We, give, we create memories mm. because those stay. And he's happy here. And he's he very happy it. here. He's going to a great school. He's, he's very inclusive and collaborating with me to get things done. Um, and, and I'm very happy with that choice. Um, but we didn't tell him that there is no cure. Like in the beginning, he was six. What do you tell a yeah. six-year-old? Yeah. So we just said, you know, there's a problem with your muscles. Um, you can't run as fast as the others, but you know what? We're going to do physiotherapy and we're going to be here for you. And it's normal when you get tired, you can just sit. But as the disease evolved, one day, you know, he's going up the stairs and says, mommy, I can't go up anymore. Uh, the other day he's walking and he starts falling. And mm. then one year later he falls and he cannot stand up anymore. And then he cannot walk anymore. And then he cannot even stand anymore. And then the life in wheelchair started. Mm. And that goes very, very fast. Like we're talking about a few months, boom, he loses a function. A few months, boom, he loses the next function. It's over and over this grief process where you have to grieve that, oh, he can't do this anymore, he can't do that anymore. And when he stopped walking, yeah. I sent him to see a psychologist so that you know he could express his emotional needs uh, with somebody else than his mom. And she was the one who said, Luce, it's time to tell him the truth. It's time to tell him that this is not going to get better. Um, because he's thinking, this is my fault. I'm doing something wrong. Why do my legs not work anymore? Right? So that was the reason. I had to tell him. I had to tell him. And, and the reason I decided to tell him was, one, I didn't want him to feel guilty or that he was doing anything wrong. Two, I didn't want him to go on Google and find out for himself yeah. and then feel like, mommy, you didn't tell me. Um, so yeah, we, I, I collected all the courage I had. Um, I remember I was preparing for this and crying and crying, like how on earth do you tell your child something like that? Uh, but then, yeah, we, we sat down, we explained, he said, this is what Duchenne muscular dystrophy is. This is what it does to your body. This is not your fault. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, and for now there is no cure yet. And that means that it will get worse. Um, but we're doing everything we can. The scientists are doing everything they can, and we will help you. You can always come to us. We will inform you of everything you need to know. And despite this, we're still going to make life as amazing as it can be. What was his reaction? Omar, it was amazing. He was, so he was 11. I mm. told him last year. He was only 11. And he was so calm, and he said, okay, 
right? And he was just listening. Um, and we talked about emotions, emotional intelligence. I said, listen, it's normal to feel sad when something like this happens, when there's something you can't do anymore. Um, and we grieve that, and that's okay. So there's sadness that's going to come, and that's okay. Mm. If you want to cry, you can cry. If you want to yell, you can yell. It's all okay. Mm. Um, the emotions are going to come, and they're going to go through you, and then they're going to get out. Um, and then one day you're going to accept it, and then you're going to you know, laugh mm. again and have fun again. And I, I shared the cycle of grief. And you know what was really interesting? I actually wrote it down. Mm -hmm. Like it starts with denial and then yeah, you go yeah, through yeah. sadness. And I wrote the mm -hmm. steps. And then at the end, it's joy of life again. And that's the goal. And uh, like two, three hours later, when mm -hmm. we were already inside and talking about it, something else, he said, Mommy, you know what? Sometimes my sister really makes me annoyed. Like she really pisses me <laughs> yeah, off. <yeah. laughs> but instead of going through all those cycles, sometimes mm -hmm. I just think, ah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. I said, well, that's great. Yeah. You, you found a shortcut. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then we wrote down, sorry for my words. No. We wrote down, fuck it. Yeah. yeah. Like from denial <laughs> to joy of life, you can just do a fast track and say, doesn't I love matter. that. <laughs> doesn't matter. Like I still have the paper. Yeah, I yeah, said, yeah. I love you, gave it to him. So cute. And I said, yeah. you, you created a shortcut. Like yeah. this is going to this is gonna become famous one day because yeah. we don't have to make a massive big deal out of everything. Yeah. Yes, grief is horrible. And believe me, I've become a grief expert with everything. Mm. But sometimes you can also decide to go very quickly from bad news to acceptance. Yeah. And that becomes then a superpower mm. because then when you can do that, accepting things as they are and not the way you would want them to be, mm. that is such a superpower that if you can do that, you can face anything in 100%. life. 100%. Because guess what? Tough yeah. stuff is going to happen. Yeah. It happens to everybody and it's going to happen to you and it has already happened to you and it's going to happen to you again. That's mm. a fact. That is life. Mm. The problem is not that we're going to have problems. The, problems is, the problem is that we assume we shouldn't have mm. problems. We shouldn't have difficulties. We shouldn't have disease. A child shouldn't die mm. younger than their parent. Mm. But who says that? That's just our, yeah. our thinking. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. So yeah. when you accept what is, that is such a superpower, then you can face anything in life. And uh, yeah, believe it or not, like a few weeks later, he, he was the one who told me, you know, mommy, I can't walk, but it's okay. I can still drive around in my wheelchair. It's quite cool. You know, yeah, like, yeah. like he's teaching me yeah. about acceptance, about resilience, about agility, yeah. about deciding to go back to the joy of life, because mm. that's what life is about. We aren't meant to be knocked out and then stay down. Mm -hmm. Who said that? But you have people, they went through something difficult when they were five, when they were 15, 25. They stay sad about it until they're 85. That's true. Like, come yeah. on. Mm -hmm. There comes a point where we have the responsibility of saying, it's the way it is, I'm going to leave it here, and I'm moving forward. That's just, that's just incredible. And, you know, uh, just like the first time I met you before and, and now, like feeling and sensing your mental strength i mean it's incredible but like the thing that you 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 shared a picture and i happily reposted it on my linkedin uh seeing you at the gym yeah. and you know you said you know yes this is a situation my son is in this situation and i'm it's it's motivating you to even stay stronger to help him to yeah. uh, can, can, can you share that like you know because there are some people for example, um, they might want to get like assistance, maybe try to hire somebody who would do all the heavy lifting. But no, you decided to take the heavy lifting. Well, I, d I didn't have a choice. He, he, his capacity not to walk anymore came really as a shock because in average that happens when boys are around 12 years old. Mm. He stopped walking when he was 10. 
I was just not prepared for it. Like, what? Already? I thought we still had two years. And, and you know, like the day before, he's still walking. And then, boom, he cannot walk anymore. It was a real shock. And so it wasn't a choice. I had to lift him. I had to lift. Like, of course, we had a wheelchair. But I had to lift him from the wheelchair to the bed, from the bed to yeah. the And I realized, oh, my God, I'm really weak. Mm. And, and, and I've never been to the gym. Like, mm. I've always been tiny and skinny. So yeah, aesthetically, yeah. I didn't need to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I never went and I didn't know anything about the gym. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go to the gym. Yeah, yeah. And then I went to the gym and I walk around. I'm like, oh, how does this work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Um, but I didn't have a choice because every time I was lifting him up, I had back pain. Mm. So you had to start working on your core. Exactly. My to, core, my yeah. back, everything, everything. Yeah, so yeah. I went to the gym, took a PT and I said, please teach me. Like, how does this work? And I said, my only goal is to be able to lift my son. Mm. So he said, okay, we're going to work on this and so work on that. A lot of like what deadlifts. What's, what's the thing? Well, I naively thought yeah. I need strong arms. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's like, no, strong no back, strong core. Yeah. Exactly. He said, it's the back, it's the glutes, it's the legs. Yeah. Like, we have to work on That's, everything so yeah, that you can lift body. properly mm -hmm. without hurting yourself. And then he taught me also how to lift and from the mm. car. It's, we even brought Alex to the gym with oh, wow. my car and he taught me how to take him out and put him in his wheelchair yeah. and all those things. Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah, but, but yes, I went to the gym for the first time in my life at age 39. Mm -hmm. So it's never too late, yeah. people. Um, but then I thought, okay, this is one motivation, but I need to change my identity around it mm -hmm. because after going to the gym for like a year, I still felt like a beginner. Mm. I was still going in like, oh, how does that machine work? How yeah, does yeah. Do it? So I had to change my, my uh, belief system about it. And that's why I started the challenge 45-45, which is I said for 45 days, I'm going to work out for 45 minutes a day. Mm. Any, any workout, like that can yeah. be running, that can be walking, that can be yoga, whatever. But yeah. I need to move 45 minutes a day to tell myself and to create proof that now I'm a fit person. Yeah. I'm an active person mm. because if you haven't been to the gym for so long, that's not what you believe. So I said, identity change. We're going to create proof that now I'm an active person. I'm a fit person. I go to the gym. I walk, I walk, I run. So that's what I started doing. And then I posted that on LinkedIn saying, people, guys, if I can do it, you can do it. 100%. So join me, join yeah. me 45 minutes, yeah, yeah. 45 days. It's, it, it's not that hard, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's the commitment and the consistency that is tough. Yeah. And that starts with an identity change. I can tell you, you put so. us all to shame. I was like, oh my, and I have a, <laughs> I have a gym where I live. And I was like, what am I doing? You <laughs> know, I, was like, so I looked at it. I was like, it's not my laptop. I was like, okay, I'm off. Put my gym gloves on. And then, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I, I go to the gym. I'm just, unfortunately, very bad when it comes to consistency. Uh -huh. It's really bad. And I, I always tell people, you have to have discipline. And yeah. just like you do everything else, gym should be just like how you eat every day. You have to have, you have to focus on yourself as well. But I, I, I don't know when I'm actually going to, you know, um, start the that. challenge I, I know, then. I know, I will. Start the challenge. I will. I will. And it's not like lifting weights or whatever. It's whatever works for you. Just yeah. move your body. Just get that blood pumping. Yeah. That's it. I'm I'm so happy that you you shared that story and and you know uh, just to close off I I want to hear if you have any last final words that you want to share to the audience about whether it's with uh, negotiating in a high stake um, hostage situation or negotiating with family members um, uh, ones who are I guess you can say super fit or the ones who are uh, you know going through their own um, journey. Like Alex, what's your final message? 
You know, the number one thing that made a difference in my life where I had to negotiate with myself to be able to deal with this um, was when I decided to put the guns down and instead of facing life like a fighter and a warrior and we're going to do this and we're going to do that, I actually put the guns down and said, you know what, if I want to influence others, if I want to have calmness, if I want to come to resolutions, I need to create inner calmness first. Yeah. And that starts with having peace with yourself. Yeah. So my invitation to people would be, what about you start having peace negotiations with yourself, go inward and look at yourself and listen to that inner voice that I guarantee you for nine out of 10 people is not very nice. Mm. That inner voice that says, you should do this, you should do that, you're lazy, you're this, you're that. We all have it, right? Yeah. And start have a conversation with that voice and say, can you chill out a bit? Yeah. Can we look at everything that I do well? And by having that conversation, and I kid you not, some people might cry when having this for the first time because it's so automatic that we don't even know how detrimental it is. So by um, working with that inner voice and making it sound a bit more kind, mm. we can move mountains. Basim Mahrabi, thank you very much for joining Zeno Talks. You're this welcome, Omar. This is uh, the first of, not second, many, <laughs> many more sessions to come. We, I think we can talk forever. This My is pleasure. amazing. We thank can. you so much for joining. You're very welcome.